It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Miguel Echeverria. My wife and I, um, wife Holly, uh, and my girls, we just uh, we joined about three weeks ago or so. We've been in the, the Raleigh area about seven months. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys uh, here today and to preach the word uh, here at Christ Covenant. But before starting, uh, I just want to do something. I want to review uh, the text we previously covered roughly from chapter 11 into the the first part of chapter 12 uh, of 2 Samuel. Uh, why, uh, one, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in 2 Samuel, and two, I know some of you are like me, and you sit with children. Um, and no matter how hard you try and pay attention, sometimes you miss things. Uh, why? Because you look next to you, and your child is drawing on himself or her, herself, or uh, they're like mine, they're licking the seat in front of them, and you're just saying, please stop, and you miss things. Um, so for your sake and my own as well, I'm going to review the previous context, and then we'll get into our passage uh, for today. As we saw previously in 2 Samuel um, 11 through uh, 12, the first part, 12a, if you will, uh, David falls in the sin with Bathsheba and is told uh, a few things. Uh, one, his child will die. Uh, two, the sword will not depart from his house. And three, that someone from his own ha- house will lie openly with his wives. And admittedly, David does see his sin. Um, he repents. He's forgiven. He's told that in the previous context. Um, so he has forgiven sin. But we see here there are still consequences, or as I'll try and tease out in a moment, uh, there, are st- there is still discipline from God for his sin. Um, but when you look at ancient Near Eastern kings, I mean, they committed adultery and then some. They never asked for forgiveness. It was their prerogative to do these things. But David is not like any other king in the ancient Near East. He is God's king. He's the one through whom the Messiah, the king of all kings, would come. And God would not leave David alone in his sin. He would teach him, he would shape him, and mold him through these series of events that you'll find here in 2 Samuel 12 through 20. And what I'll do here is I'll look at this text in three major movements. Uh, One, the king in Jerusalem. Here we see David in verses 12, 15 through 15, 12. He is in Jerusalem still. Following that, he is sent into exile. This is now the king in exile. This is from 15, 13 through 19, 8. And lastly, following David's exile, you see a restoration of David in 19, 8 through 20 to 26. And I'm going to argue these three major movements after we look at them and perhaps throughout as well, uh, look forward to a greater race restoration that David and God's people throughout redemptive history have anticipated. Um, so let's look at this first section. As we take a look here in 12.15 through 15.12, we see here that David is still in Jerusalem. And just following the pronouncement of what's about to happen, indeed his child does die. His first child with Bathsheba uh, passes away. Uh, and you see here that David, more he prays, he pleads, and then following the child's death, uh, David, he does something uncharacteristic. Typically, after someone dies, you have a seven-day mourning period uh, in this context. David doesn't do that. He washes, he gets up, and he eats. I mean, this all sounds so heartless and so uh, strange, but 
I think we see something really interesting in verse 23 here in chapter 12 that gives you a clue as to who or what David's hope is really in. If you look at verse 23 in chapter 12, 12, 23, it says, but now he is dead. That is the child. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, commentators make much of this verse. Do you expect this child see his child in Sheol? I think that's, pre- that's rather uh, nearsighted. Uh, in light of what's been promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, I think David sees a larger redemptive uh, story, a larger redemptive hope and restoration in mind here in which he and his child will one day be reunited. Um, but in the midst of all this, in whom is David's hope that he will one day be restored, this future restoration that gives him the hope that he no longer needs to mourn. There's nothing he can do at this point. So he gets up, he washes, and he eats. Um, it's really interesting what the author does here. In this chapter of curses or sufferings, if you will, the author weaves in the birth of Solomon. Look at here in verse 24, just following verse 23. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. He called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It's interesting because in the midst of the misery you find in these chapters, uh, this birth of Solomon almost functions as a, as a ray of hope. You have the, here this child of David who is born. And why would it follow uh, the death of the previous child and the hope that David has in future restoration? Um, this ray of hope here, I think, and this text, in the larger context of the Bible, is possibly alluding to the fact that, remember, there's a, there's a promised Davidic king who will come from David's line who will bring peace, safety, and final restoration to God people, God's people. I think when you look at this text in light of the Gospels and the entire canon, I see that David, perhaps here, is looking um, to Solomon. The author is looking to Solomon that this greater restoration will come through Solomon and this Solomonic king, this greater Solomonic king who will ultimately bring the restoration that David is looking for in which he will be one day reunited with those whom he loves. In this case, more directly in the context, his son. So this greater hope of restoration in the midst of these curses here, if you will, in these chapters, will come through a Solomonic king. This hope of a king who will come from a woman who will bring this final restoration that David and his people are looking for. But as you look at the rest of these chapters, it's really easy to lose sight of this ray of hope here in chapter 12 because everything you see from this point following, it's like this negative domino effect of events. Just one after another, after another, after another, in the midst of which we can't lose the fact that there is the ray of hope of this this Solomon, uh, the Solomonic king who will be born, who will bring final and ultimate restoration uh, through his people, through the line of David and Solomon. Um, But here you go. Here's a list of these uh, curses or these consequences that come about because of David's earlier forgiven sin, if you will. If you see in 13, 1 through 22, uh, Amnon rapes Tamar. Um, Wish I had time to go into this, but there's not a whole lot of time. So Amnon is consumed with 
lust for his half-sister uh, Tamar, so he physically um, violates her. All right? And at one point, uh, Tamar even says, hey, let's do this right. The king will not refuse me from you. He is so consumed with lust that he rapes his sister Tamar. And she ends up living uh, the, rest of, the rest of her days um, basically almost as, as a widow uh, in the house of her brother. And then following this event, Absalom, in a very calculated way, he takes his own retributive justice into his own hands, and he murders his brother Amnon. Uh, as they're in the field, he coaxes David, his father, into allowing his brother to come with him, and he murders his brother Amnon. So following this, uh, um, Absalom now flees Jerusalem. All right, So he wants to flee and get away from what he has just committed. And the possible repercussions for his sin, he tries to avoid all that, and he will now flee. Then after Absalom, you have this third event here, if you will, as Joab manipulates David into allowing Absalom to return to Jerusalem. But notice when he comes back, there's no reconciliation. Uh, in fact, Absalom lives apart from his father, David. Um, and he's there for two years before really they have any kind of contact whatsoever. They just live apart. But when he returns to Jerusalem, Absalom begins to have all these thoughts in his mind, like, perhaps maybe I want to be king. And it's really interesting that he now begins to conspire uh, to be the next king of Israel, to take this throne by force, if you will, and just take a look at what Absalom begins doing as he tries to take this throne from his father David. In a very crafty way, you see what Absalom now begins to do is he begins to sway the heart of the people of Israel. Take a look at 15, 4 through 6. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So as Absalom sits in front of the gate, he now begins to purposely begin stealing the hearts of the people of Israel to win them over as he is now plotting to take the throne of Israel from his father. But what do we see here so far? we see a series of negative consequences that have come about and will continue to come about in the following context because of David's earlier sin with Bathsheba. Um, see, a daughter is raped. Um, two sons die. Um, he has to flee Jerusalem. Indeed, we see sin has its consequences. And it's clear in David's case that he has confessed and he is forgiven of his sin. And we often wonder, we're forgiven of our sin. Why should there be consequences for our sin? We see here, obviously, there are consequences for David's sin. After all, we're forgiven, right? What's the point of consequences after I've confessed and I've been forgiven, right? Um, I think John Piper brings some good wisdom here as to the reasons for or the consequences for forgiven sin after we've realized our sin, we've confessed, we've been forgiven. Look what John Piper says. He says, to demonstrate the exceeding evil of sin, one, um, to show that God does not take lightly sin, and three, to humble and to sanctify 
the sinner. So we see here in this sanctification perhaps a different element that could, that could be teased out. That is God's discipline. We see, yes, there are consequences for sin, but in these consequences we see that there is discipline. What's the point of discipline? That the sinner might learn. He might grow. The word discipline itself means to be trained, right? Um, so God would not allow David uh, not to learn from this experience. He will train him. He will grow him. He will mature him into the king he's supposed to be, the king he's supposed to reflect as the king of Israel. And I often found myself reading this passage several times over and over and over again and trying to tease out what's a consequence, what is a discipline. And I think I see elements of both here. We could possibly tease these apart, but the fact is we see clear discipline for David's sin uh, in these negative domino effect of events that you will. You will. Um, that is to say, in the consequences David experiences for his sin, God is disciplining David. He is teaching David. He is maturing David. Because again, what is the point of discipline? Is to train the sinner, to sanctify the sinner, to mature him, to make him more like his God. And as a child of God, God would not leave David alone in his sin, as we see in these passages. So when you think of David's sin, you've got to think through an Old Testament framework. Um, the discipline that David experiences must be understood through a covenantal framework. That is, God's gracious election and his gracious dealing with his people because he loves them as his very own children. That is God's gracious election and grace, gracious dealing with his people as those, those whom he loves as his children. God would not allow Israel in the Old Testament to go their own way. So what, is it, what does he do consistently in the Old Testament when Israel disobeys? He disciplines them so they might learn, they might grow, that they might learn more of the character of their God and be more like their God through this discipline that he pronounces upon them. And if you look at places in the Old Testament, places like Deuteronomy 8.5 and Proverbs 5, you see that this discipline that, the, that God pronounces upon Israel is like the discipline between a father and a child. The father loves the son so much that he will not let him continue in his sins. Instead, he disciplines him that he might learn, that he might grow, that he might be trained through this experience. And the hope was always that through discipline, there would be a positive response, that God's people repent and that they might be restored to Yahweh. And if you look even at passages like Psalm 94, 12, we see that the psalmist here even views discipline as a blessing. Indeed, the fact that Yahweh would not allow his people to continue with sin, and sin is a blessing. They would grow, they would change, and they would mature and ultimately be restored to him. The psalmist sees discipline as a blessing. A blessing that a father pronounces to a son, as we see in this larger Old Testament covenantal framework. But as you cross from one testament to another, you look at, for example, Hebrews 12. The writer makes clear that God disciplines those whom he loves as a father disciplines his child. Again, echoing here this Old Testament framework from Deuteronomy 8 and Proverbs 5 that God loves his children 
so much that he is willing to discipline them that ultimately one day they, we, might share in his holiness. Indeed, discipline is God's fatherly work in the lives of his children. Uh, We see this also in church discipline, right? We see a brother or a sister who lives in continuous sin, who follow the proper uh, steps and procedures. Um, But ultimately, if they continue in that sin, what happens? They come under church discipline. And it's not this harsh, negative thing. It's actually a loving act, right? The goal ultimately is the believer's restoration to fellowship with the body. That's the point of discipline. So when you see David's discipline here in this passage, his discipline must be understood in light of God's larger covenantal framework in which he has chosen, he has elected, and loves his people so much that he will not let them continue in their sin. He is gracious enough to teach them, to train them, to prune them through disciplining them. And it's not unloving. In fact, it is loving that God does not let us continue in our own way. And when you look at David's life, what could possibly uh, David have been learning? I think one clear thing you can perhaps take from this is that the king is not above the law. He is the king, but he's not above the law. But instead, he is to provide a model of righteous adherence to the Torah. That is God's law. The king is not above the law, but he is to serve serve God, serve Yahweh in his obedience, modeling Torah obedience to the people. He is not to become lax. And as we see, David does repent. He sees that the seriousness of his violation of God's law, and God now chastens him through the series of painful events in which he, which he is training him, he's disciplining him, he is molding him uh, to be more like him himself, more like God, and ultimately one day be restored to him. And unless we think, unless as Christians, as people in general, unless we have this framework from Scripture to understand suffering uh, and possible uh, discipline, uh, we really have no capacity to understand the consequences of sin. These are just, for some people, random events. They're, uh, it's someone else's fault. Um, it is um, something someone else has done to me. It's, just, it's completely unjust and uncalled for. But we see that in David's life, sometimes, in fact, we suffer and we are disciplined because God is teaching us something. He wants us to learn. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be more like him. Our loving Father wants us to be more like him. Thus, we think through discipline, through this gracious covenantal framework we find in the Bible. Um, Here's a quote by the Puritan pastor, uh, John Owen. Uh, He makes a good point. It's simple. short but right he says love precedes discipline in fact god's fatherly love for for us is if you will the groundwork the basis for his discipline of us indeed before god ever disciplines us god has a covenantal love for us as a father loves a son i'm I'm not talking about some some merciless uh college hazing here right no this is completely different um this is god as a father loving us through his discipline for us. And we see here, for example, that sometimes in life, um, like David, uh, people can just truck along. Um, We we become indifferent. We become calloused, blind to our sin, or even thinking that we are above God's law. We're just 
flying high, if you will. How many times have you seen Christian leaders, uh, pastors, uh, Christian scholars um, just fall into sin? These things don't happen all of a sudden normally. There's a pattern, and eventually that person's sin is exposed. No names need to be mentioned here, but we've all experienced, seen, or heard of such things happening. Could it be? Could it be that in such events, God is being so gracious to such people that he will not let them continue in their sin? In fact, he deals with them graciously and lovingly as a father deals with his son that ultimately one day they might be restored and not continue along that destructive path. Um, I spent some time in Denton, Texas. After I finished college, I went to a program in Denton, Texas, uh, taught by a guy named uh, Tommy Nelson. If you've never met Tommy, Tommy's about six foot three. Um, he benches about 300 uh, pounds, former quarterback for North Texas State. He's just a man's man. Um, just Anyway, really strong and big. And uh, Tom would always tell us during our discipleship time, see, he would say, men, if you guys ever live in consistent unrepentant disobedience or sin to God, God will beat you. And I thought, wow, Tom, that's, that's pretty strong. Um, but when he said that, it really resonated with me. He was obviously speaking in hyperbole, um, although God may sometimes physically beat us. But I thought back to my previous life, and I thought, you know, um, this makes sense because in my early years in college, I went off to college, um, and I did... Um, like some college students do when they leave home and they're away from their church and families, they just go crazy. Um, and that's what happened to me. Um, so a couple of events happened in my life to work. What Tom said really just kind of clicked uh, in my mind. One, I was home for Christmas and a guy jumped out of a bush and he beat me. He literally beat me. Um, and I was living at that point some pretty consistent disobedience uh, in my life, this is North Carolina. Um, you guys think, well, that's odd. Uh, some guy jumped out of a bush and hit you, but I grew up in Miami, Florida. All right, you tell someone, man, some guy jumped out of a bush and he just hit me. Their, their reaction is more like, oh, watch out for those bushes, man. Um, <laughs> it's not that odd. Uh, so I continued in my consistent disobedience uh, and I wondered, is God really trying to teach me something here and about a year or so later, I end up in the hospital with this freak injury out of nowhere. I spent two or three weeks in the hospital. I was on IV antibiotics later on at home on um, more antibiotics. And I finally lay there in bed, and I'm thinking, all right, God, you're obviously trying to teach me something here. But those events, they led to my confession and repentance of my, of my sin. And now I look back, and I actually lost quite a bit. Uh, during that time in which I was injured, laid up in hospital beds. Um, but I learned from it. I repented. God used it. He disciplined me. He shaped me. Um, and God has continued to shape me and mold me uh, over time. Um, and they've thankfully uh, been, le been less uh, physical uh, events. Uh, but I'm still grateful for some of the pre previous ones. But God disciplines us. He shows us. He will not allow us to continue in our sin like he did not let David, his son, uh, continue in his sin, but he dealt with him. He disciplined him. 
And maybe you are enduring a period of suffering. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering is related to God's discipline. We live in a fallen, uh, sinful world, and people, we get sick. Um, people get things like cancer and other viruses, diseases, accidents. Things happen because we live in a fallen and disobedient world, and that is the result of the false. So we can't blame everything negative or every kind of suffering on our disobedience. But sometime, sometimes it just so happens that we are living in unrepentant, disobedient sin, and we are suffering. If you do see a correlation between those two, it might be a good time to examine yourself. Maybe God is doing to you what he has historically done in the lives of his people throughout redemptive history. I have a friend of mine um, who also spent some time with me um, in Texas. He recently wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition. Um, now, when I first got to Texas, um, this is one of the guys I looked up to. I mean, he was great. He still is great. He's an amazing preacher, amazing teacher. You meet with him one-on-one. -on -one. You just like him. He's a great guy. Um, and God, he began pastoring this small church in Texas, and God was blessing his efforts. The church was growing. Um, people were being uh, transformed um, in and through that church, and he was flying high. In his own words, this is what he says. Things were going so well in those early years that I began to think God was willing to overlook the sin that I was hiding. Almost much like David in the passage that we've been looking at. And the sin that he was hiding, this is open, it's published, um, he's written an article about it, was pornography. In other words, he was preaching, the church was growing, great things were happening, but he was looking at pornography. It was almost as, as if, because the church was growing and everything was great, that God was willing to overlook this sin in his life. But, obviously, and thankfully, as a child of God, God would not let him continue in this sin. And through a series of events, um, this sin, by his own choice, was made public. And he went through things I probably wouldn't have the stomach to ever go through. Sit in front of his church and answer questions about these events. Um, there were some difficulties um, that happened in the church. People left, but ultimately uh, God brought restoration and healing to the church. And he learned and he grew. He was disciplined and trained. God would not let him go in his sin. And this is what he says as he now looks back uh, on these events. In his own words, I shudder to think what would have happened had God never exposed my sin and crushed me as he did. God did not leave my friend alone like he did not leave David alone. And he was grateful that he did not. He was grateful that God crushed him, that God showed him, God disciplined him, he trained him through it. He was grateful as a father disciplines and trains a child. And as you look here, even at this text, you wonder, I mean, you really never see David um, dishing out any discipline uh, for either of his sons here, um, for Amnon or for Absalom. The text just never, never brings it up. You think something like that in light of what's happening here and these events in this context would be pretty important, but you see anger, you see mourning, but... There's no discipline. You wonder if things would have turned out differently for his sons. We just don't know that. But as a loving father, you'd think David would have carried out some discipline to train 
and teach his children. Not that he didn't, but just odd, the text never brings it up. But we see here clearly, well, we can apply, uh, we can't imply some things, but we see clearly that David does sin. It's clear in the text. And David faces repercussions uh, for his sins. God is disciplining him, showing him, and ultimately he will restore him through this disciplinary process that he is putting him through. As we think about David's life, David's events, we have to ask ourselves, is there a sin that perhaps we are concealing, perhaps something we've become callous to? Um, Or perhaps thinking, hey, in light of who I am or what I do, where I work, my status in life, my social and economic status, God is willing to overlook this sin. Look at David. If God wasn't willing to overlook David's sin as his child, I promise you, he's not willing to look over our, overlook our sin either. And maybe for some of, us, some of us, like my friend, maybe it is pornography. Um, maybe it's conceit. Maybe it's pride. Um, maybe it's slothfulness or any other of the deadly sins uh, that Tom has spoken about recently. Um, Maybe it's racism. You might want to examine yourself, because if you're not suffering, um, but you are living in this unrepentant pattern of sin, I'm not talking about that you're openly and actively struggling to put your sin to death. I'm talking about sin that you know is in your life, and you're just not dealing with it. Perhaps you're callous to it. You think God's overlooking it. Now's a good time to examine yourself and repent of your sin, um, that you might be restored to your God and your maker and be more like him. Um, But maybe you are suffering. You do see a direct connection. You don't think that you're suffering simply because of the consequences of living in a fallen world. You do see a very clear connection between your suffering and perhaps um, unrepentant sin in your life. Now is a great time to repent of your sin, uh, lest, as Jesus says, uh, something worse might happen to you. Remember, as a child, God never leaves us alone. He will deal with us. He does deal with us as children. As the author of Hebrews clearly points out for our good that we might be conformed to his holiness one day. And that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. That's the loving thing a father does for a son or a daughter. Now, as we look at the next section here, um, we see here in 1513, through 198 David is now exiled okay he now leaves Absalom comes in and David leaves Jerusalem and as you look uh, at this text you see David is driven out of Jerusalem he's now in the wilderness he even instructs Zadok to take the ark back to Jerusalem trusting that God will one day take him back but you see some important words here that's rep- that are repeated over and over and over in this text and If something is repeated over and over and over in a text, it probably means it's pretty important. Um, And the words you see here are crossing the Jordan. Uh, Interestingly, as David leaves Jerusalem, uh, it's noted that he crosses the Jordan as he is leaving Jerusalem. And he he crosses the Jordan, and he's now in the wilderness. And you also see he's in the wilderness. He's now hungry in the wilderness after after, after he's now crossed the Jordan. But where do we see those important words crossing the Jordan within the larger story of the Old Testament? All right? You've got to think back to the Exodus story in the Old Testament. What do you see? God delivers his people out of Egypt. 
They go into the wilderness. They cross the Jordan. And they, now, they are now in the promised land. Okay? And they eventually establish their kingdom in the promised land. Okay? What do you find here? I don't think these are mere geographic details in the text. I think what you see here is an undoing, if you will, of the exodus that occurred previously as God's people crossed the Jordan and went into the land. Now you see a reversal of that as David and his people exit Jerusalem, cross the Jordan. They're now back in the wilderness. You see God's people here uh, with David are driven into exile because of their sin. This is a pattern you notice throughout Scripture. You see sin, exile, and then future restoration. Right? We saw this in Eden. Adam and Eve sin, and they are exiled from Eden. Right? In Samuel, you see this now here with David. David sins egregiously, and he is exiled from Jerusalem. All right? You see this later in the life of Israel. Right? Israel lives in consistent, unrepentant sin, regardless of the warnings that God is giving them through the prophets, and they are now exiled from Jerusalem. But in each of these accounts, there's also a restoration that's expected, right? Adam and Eve, through the skull-crushing seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, they expect that what? The way to Eden will be reopened through this one who will crush the serpent. Later on here, uh, David does expect, as we see here, a restoration to Jerusalem. And Israel, later on in the prophets, when they are exiled, they expect a restoration, not to one strip of territory, but to a new creation, right? a new heavens and a new earth. So we see sin, exile, but those who are in exile look forward to a coming restoration. And because of all this, because of this larger story that David um, is thinking through here in this text, David has the hope that he will one day be restored to his rightful place in the land and rightfully so. So David now exits Jerusalem, and Absalom now enters. And when he enters, um, his son Absalom will shame him as he sleeps with his concubines uh, open um, in front of everyone to see. And then later, uh, we see as David's men are now engaging Absalom in battle, we see that Absalom dies, and David grieves. But interestingly, look at what happens here. Um, the way Absalom dies is by hanging on a tree. All right? And by Absalom hanging on a tree, the way is now reopened for David to re-enter Jerusalem. And interestingly, um, look what David says in 1833. He says, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What do you have here? You have the, the Davidic king wishing, hoping, that he would have died instead of his son. That he would have been if you will, because you think of Deuteronomy 27, what is hanging on a tree symbolized? Symbolized? It symbolized being under God's curse. That is the weight of God's judgment and his wrath. So what does David wish? David wishes that he might be cursed instead of Absalom. He wishes he could die in his place. And although 
David couldn't die and suffer the curse of God's punishment and wrath in the place of Absalom. I think when you look at the gospel specifically uh, and the whole canon, what does this look forward to? It looks forward to 2 Samuel 7, this greater son of David who would what? He would suffer in place of his children, taking our curse because of our sin in our place and reopening the way for, for us to one day be restored and dwell in a new Eden, a new heavens and a new earth, have eternal life in the presence of our God. David couldn't do this, even though he so desired to do this, but this looks forward to a greater David who would be hanged, who would be crushed, who would bear our curse on our behalf. So after, Dave, after Absalom is hanged, um, the way is now reopened for David now again to cross the Jordan. All right, The Exodus story, if you will, has, has once again been reestablished. God's people are back in God's place as David crosses the Jordan. He re-enters Jerusalem. He takes his rightful place where he belongs as king. He quashes, squashes uh, Sheba's rebellion. It kind of gives you a clue into the tension here between north and south, which, which will really bubble over uh, after Solomon passes away. But here, following these chapters, after David is now back in the land in Jerusalem, what do you see? God has restored him. Um, God has disciplined him. David has been trained. He's been molded. He's been shaped. He has now been restored to his rightful place as king. And as we look back over this text, we think 2 Samuel 11 through 20. We've seen that God does not leave David alone in his sin. Instead, he disciplines him. He deals with him as his child, as a father deals with a child. And as God's children, God also deals with us in the same way that he deals with David, not letting us continue in our sin, a sin that might, might lead to our own destruction. Instead, he disciplines us. He trains us. He molds us to be more like him through adversity and through suffering. That again, this does not mean that every time we suffer, God is disciplining us or we're under God's um, discipline or disfavor or um, dislike. It doesn't mean that at all. What I am saying is that sometimes there is a clear connection, as we see here in the life of David, between unrepentant sin and God's discipline, where God is openly chastening us, molding us, shaping us. Because if you do see a clear connection between those two, I think it's a pretty good indication that God is dealing with you. Like he has dealt with me, like he dealt with my friend, like he dealt with David, so that we might repent and be molded into the image of Christ for our good and for his glory. Our loving Father, thankfully, does not leave us alone in our sin. As we look again back over this chapter, we see another detail. Uh, then the mist, which we can't lose sight of, in the midst of the, this horrible series of events that you find in these chapters. Again, you see Solomon's birth. He's born of a woman. I think this birth really helps us draw the strings together on how this passage fits into the overall story of the Bible. When you think back all the way to Genesis 3.15, you see a promise of a woman, of that through the woman's seed, there would be the birth of a child who would crush 
the serpent, and that crushing of the serpent would reopen the way for God's people to be restored to him. So when we see this, it all kind of makes sense as to what's going on in the overarching picture of the Bible and how the story fits in. That is, through this one who would be born of a woman, this descendant of David, this descendant of Solomon, who we know to be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, this descendant of the woman, of David, of Solomon, he would be hanged on a tree, taking our curse on our behalf on the cross for his wayward children, that he might die for our sin, bearing our curse in our place, that we might be delivered from our own wilderness of sin, which we were lost, hungry, and wandering, searching for something and anyone who will help us and restore us into fellowship with our Maker, God Himself, our Father. And maybe um, you're sitting here and this is all new to you, and you're wondering about David and curses and um, restoration and exodus, and what are you talking about? Um, I just want to be clear. I think we are all, at one point, uh, like Absalom. We are under God's curse and judgment, and we rightly deserve it. And the only one who could undo the curse is the one who was hanged, suffered, and died on our behalf, Jesus Christ. Trusting in him reopens the way for us to dwell in his presence, to be restored into fellowship with our God and our maker forever. It's through him we have confidence. It's through him we trust in this greater Davidic king, this greater Solomon, who reopens the way for us through his death on a cross to dwell in the presence of our maker and our God forever. Let's pray.